Here the last couple weeks, you know we've looked a great deal at humility, we've looked a great deal at um, unity, and we looked for several weeks at how the Lord Jesus is the perfect picture, the perfect example of humility, and if he has humbled himself, how much more ought we? And this forms the foundation for what we're looking at tonight, because it's easy to say that you're going to do something, but sometimes it's a lot harder to have the heart behind it, right? Um, it's kind of like I, I say, uh, sometimes people will tie a string around their finger to remember something, and, you know, that might be a helpful tool, but uh, unless you make a habit out of something, then it becomes more ingrained, right? Well, I think in the scripture, the, the heart has already been discussed, and now some of the details and the mechanics are being laid out, and if you don't have a heart of humility, if you don't have a spirit of lowliness, then you won't uh, be able to implement these things very easily into your life. And that's true of me and you, and um, it's true of, of all of us here, that we need the heart before the mechanics. Philippians 2, we'll begin reading in verse 14. We'll read down to verse 18 tonight. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and the one issue that has been discussed in the book is there is some disagreements in the church, and there is some issues with unity, and he's urging them uh, to do better. If you'll stand with me for the reading, if you're able to stand, Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 14. The Bible says this, "...do all things without murmurings and arguments." that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the word and the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. Yes, and if I am offered on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason also, you be glad and rejoice with me. Let's have prayer together. Uh, Pastor Jeremiah, would you pray for us? Amen. All right, please be seated. I think each and every one of us here have been in an argument before. We have participated in arguments, and sometimes maybe you look back and you say, boy, that sure wasn't something worth arguing for. And maybe there's other times you look back and you say, that was something worth arguing for. Um, in the passage, however, Paul writes and says, do all things without murmurings and arguments. He urges them to do what they do without murmurings and arguments. And that sounds easy to read, 
but it's a lot harder to apply. It's a lot harder to just say, okay, this week I'm just not going to argue, or this week I'm just not going to complain and, and murmur. And I don't know all the applications he had in mind. Some look at this and they say murmuring is within your spirit, it's within your soul, and the arguing is, is kind of speaking out and it's with others. Um, some would say that, that the murmurings would be more within the church and the arguments could be without the church. So, you know, some churches have struggled at a business meeting and people saying things and, and uh, you know, some divisions and nasty things said in, in, within the church. And um, also there's occasions in the Bible where it talks about people outside the church having um, unethical or unchristian arguments with those outside of the faith in, in court cases or Christians taking one another to court, and it's in a public affair. But Paul says, do all things without murmurings and arguments. And I think what he's saying is you have a purpose and a mission to fulfill in your life. Do all the things that you do without murmurings and without arguments. And you know, in the text, the root of this goes back to the heart that we have. The thoughts that we think and the words that we say are connected to a heart and an outlook on life, right? And the murmurings and the arguments flow from a heart of, of looking every man on his own things and every man not looking also on the things of others, right? Like we looked earlier. And when we have a self-orientation, we have, um, a, uh, we have a mission to fulfill, and that is to fulfill ourselves. And when people don't fit in with our plans, arguments uh, arise immediately. Um, Someone else made a really good list. I meant to put their name here, but uh, Moyer, I guess, is the name. But listen to some of the, his uh, explanation of these words. He summarizes them as selfish complaining, unbalanced criticism of small matters, grudging unwillingness to be helpful, impatience toward what is not understood. And all of these would line up with the, the concept of, of what he's saying. And at the end, he says this, Paul's use of the plural in each of these cases makes his prohibition all-embracing. He also uses this synonym, without carping, that is self-centered criticisms of any sort, whether spoken or silent. Or silent. That gets some of us, doesn't it? Because we play them in our mind, don't we? And we'll kind of review them in our mind. And I don't know if you've ever had an argument with someone in your mind where they weren't there but you were playing what they were saying and you were giving all the reasons why you were right or, or why your idea was best or whatever it might be. And Paul says to do all things without murmurings and arguments. When I looked at this, I said, I have some work to do because I know I sometimes murmur. I know I sometimes argue. Now, the, the difference between an argument and a discussion, I think some of that boils down to your spirit, doesn't it? Because two people can speak about things that they disagree about with love and kindness and respect, right? And it, it doesn't turn into a, an emotional argument, right? But it's simply two people working through something, right? And it doesn't become an argument. It doesn't become something that harms the relationship. And what a call that is for me. What a call it is for you to lay aside ourselves. And if there is a disagreement of some sort, let it not be about self. Let it be about the matter at hand and let it not be about our honor or our feelings, but let it just be about the, the issue under discussion and, um, and, and to treat others with that humble-mindedness like we've learned about in the past. So he says, he gives the command, do all things without murmurings and arguments. But notice what he says next. That, 
That is, so that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now here, this is, this is an interesting verse, okay? And one of the reasons it's kind of interesting is Paul is borrowing it from, from the Old Testament, okay? He's using the, the Greek translation, the Old Testament, and he's uh, changing it around a little bit in application to the people of the time. So if you want to look it up, it's in Deuteronomy 32.5, and I'll read it for you. They have corrupted themselves. Their blemish is not the blemish of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. You know who that was talking about? It's talking about the children of Israel. And Moses is saying, they, the children of Israel, are a crooked and perverse generation. Well, when Paul quotes it, he doesn't say that the Philippians are a crooked and perverse generation. No, he says that you shine as lights to the crooked and perverse generation. And uh, as I look at verse 15, Paul is saying, do the things that you do without murmurings and without arguments because those things affect your spirit, they affect your testimony, they affect your influence, because I want you to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God and without rebuke. In other words, he's saying, when you give in to complaints and murmuring and whining, and when you give in to arguments and petty, uh, silly discussions and, and getting angry at people over little things and having these conflicts that are useless, it affects your testimony. And that's something that we, when we think of our testimony, we don't usually think of those things, right? You know, we might think of smoking pot or we might think of, you know, shouting curse words and we say, I want to be a good testimony. But when we talk about being a good testimony, Paul says, don't murmur and don't argue because you're the sons of God. You want to be blameless and harmless. You want to be without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. This shining that's talked about at the end there, it says, end of verse 15, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world is in darkness and we are shining as lights. And the shining here in, in the original is, is it has the idea that it's not that, yes, we are shining, but it's more that the light is being shined and people are seeing it. In other words, the emphasis is more on those who would see the light. And he's saying, he's not emphasizing as much you need to shine, but you are being watched and others are seeing your light. And this is that idea of testimony again. And a crooked world, a twisted world, that's the word for scoliosis there, that a crooked world. But he says you are among the world. You shine as lights. Lost my spot there for a second. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is an important line. We are lights in the world. You know, we, we sing the, the little kid song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then we say, don't let Satan blow it out, right? Um, and we also say, hide it under a bushel, no, right? And that song is implying that there are times that your light does not shine. When Satan has blown it out, and when it's under a bushel, it doesn't shine. And the scripture here is saying, you do shine as lights, but... Sometimes if there's murmuring and arguing, your light doesn't really shine or it doesn't shine very well. And uh, the implication is you're still among the world. You know, we don't, we don't get to really choose when we're in the world, right? We're in the world, period. We're here. Now, I, I know some people say, well, when we come into the church, we come apart and 
we gather together, and so maybe there's a little bit of that. But the fact is, is that we shine as lights in the world constantly. And a world that doesn't see us cannot see the light. Or a world that sees us and gets a bad taste of Christ, they also cannot see the light. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And this is an important distinction because some Christians are so disgusted with the sin of the world and so scared of the world in some senses that they truly do withdraw themselves apart. And the Bible here says, no, your your light's in the world and you need to shine that light. We don't let the world put out our light, right? We don't follow the world, but we, we let our light shine. I'm reminded of the song, um, man, it's been a long time ago now. I think Rachel was still, Rachel Yule was still here when they sang it, but the, some of the ladies sang the song, How Can We Reach a World We Never Touch? How can we show them Christ if we never show them love? Just to say we care would never be enough. How can we reach a world we never touch? And as I read this, Paul is saying, hey, you do touch the world. You live in the world. You have an influence. And don't let arguments and don't let complaining sap your influence. He urges them to be careful with their words and their spirits and their hearts. Now in verse 16, he goes further on with this idea of the light in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. Now, holding forth the word of life. He says, You shine as lights in the world, and one of the ways you shine is you hold forth the word of life. And we hold forth the scripture as we share Christ in specific terms, or we quote a Bible verse, or we say, this is what God did for me. We share the gospel in these ways. But do you know how many people are brought to Christ, at least at the beginning, is by someone whose spirit and attitude and life was very different? Um... Holding forth the word of life is not only preaching the gospel, but it's also living out the scripture. And when we live in the Christ-like way, it has an impact through that that opens the door that many times for the gospel itself. Holding forth the word of life. So we're lights, shining light in the, wor- in the world, but we're also in a world of death, holding forth the word of life. We all know this up here, but every person that you met today is going to die at some point. And we hold forth the word of life to them. And that life is found in Jesus. As you place your faith in Him, you have life. Life now, life to come. You have transforming grace within you. And you have an eternal assurance of being with the Lord. But I I noticed something else. Paul goes on to take this personal. Notice how he says it. You shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. Now I want you to think about that. Paul says, you Philippians, you are lights in the world. You're holding forth the word of life so that I can rejoice in the day of Christ. Well, wouldn't he say so that you can rejoice in the day of Christ? Like why? What's he pointing back to himself for it? Well, I was thinking about this a little bit, and I was thinking about how, in a little bit later, he says, I may rejoice in the day of Christ. 
that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. And Paul knows that one day the Philippians will stand before the Lord and he will stand before the Lord. But he figures it this way. On that day that I stand before the Lord, if you have held forth the word of life and you've shined your lights for Jesus, then I am going to be happy. You know, as I was thinking about this, you know, uh, a preacher, a pastor, someone who's taught the Word of God, giving them their life to the, the Word of God, what is it that brings them joy? What is it that truly makes them happy? Later, he's going to talk about joy and rejoicing in, in the same vein. What is it that makes someone like me feel like a success? You know what it is? It's when you who have heard the Word live the Word, you shine your light. You share Christ. You live for the Lord. You love Jesus with all your heart. That makes our, us feel like we've accomplished something. Now we know this is God's work and it's not our work and all that. But the fact is, is we still work for that, don't we? That is why we do what we do, right? I believe the truth of this word and so I, I preach it and I share it and I live it and I try to help you do the same. And I can just imagine Paul, remember where he is right now. He's in home confinement, chained to two soldiers, and he might just have a little smile as he thinks about this. That I won't run in vain. That I won't labor in vain. No, because you're living for Jesus. And he's happy about that. That's what gives him joy. I mean, I know Mrs. Jay can associate with this. When Pastor Jay would hear word of his students out doing what they trained to do and living for the Lord, right? That, just, that was one of his most joyful moments. And uh, it's his mission accomplished, you know? And uh, Paul is the same way. And he's just like, oh, if you just live for Jesus, you shine your light. I am happy. Now notice he says, notice on the flip side how he talks about this in, in terms of running in vain or laboring in vain. Um, he says it in verse uh, 16. I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. I don't know which one you associate more with, running or laboring. I'll just speak for myself. I associate more with laboring because I don't do a whole lot of running. But that's about to change because my brother-in-law has challenged me to run in a 5K. And foolishly, I have agreed. So now that means I have to start running. I, I told my wife, I said, before I can run three, I, I was a little disappointed. I thought a 5K was 2.3 miles. You really should look up these things before you make commitments. It's 3.1 miles. I was like, oh man, 3.1 miles. That's almost a whole nother mile than I imagined. So I told my wife, I said, I have to walk three miles before I can run three miles. So yesterday I walked through our whole neighborhood two times, which is only two miles. So I'm getting up to walking three miles and then I got to turn it into running three miles. I got some work to do. But I can't imagine getting up to go to this 5K and um, you know, going to the starting line and taking off and somehow taking the wrong turn and ending out, up out in a cornfield and then like the race is over and it's just like, what? I didn't even finish and I'm, it's over and here I am in the middle of this corn. How, how on earth did this happen? What a waste, right? I just ran, I thought I had trained and did all this stuff and then it wasn't even, you can understand the frustration. Maybe if running isn't your thing, laboring is more up your alley. Hopefully we all labor in some sort or another. Um, You've seen those videos on YouTube called people having their worst day ever, right? And whole shelves of items collapsing around them and just horrible, awful things. 
when that's, they're at their workplace and they've done all sorts of work to arrange these things and they all come crashing down. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, oh, laboring in vain. And can I tell you that sometimes those who preach the word and share the word and, and try to encourage people to live for God, there are moments we feel like our work and our labor is in vain. And it's usually when people are not living for Christ. When they don't care about the scripture and they're not obeying the Lord. And those are moments where we tend to feel like a failure because we gave our life to try to promote the word and to spread the word. And Paul here is saying, hey, if you shine for Jesus that day, I'm just going to be so happy that when the day of Christ comes, I, I won't feel like my life is wasted. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 and we'll be done. Yes, and if I am offered on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason also, you be glad and rejoice with me. This first phrase is a little interesting. If I be offered, if I am offered on the sacrifice and service of your faith. He talks about being offered on the sacrifice. And this word is kind of specific. So, so the general idea of offer is, you know, like, yeah, I offer you some chocolates, right? Like an offer. Like put an offer on the house. Like that sort of offer. But this offer here is specifically an offer of an offering. All right? And so he says, if I, I am offered, and he's using the metaphor of an offering. And the idea is a pouring out of a drink offering is the picture that's being used with this original word. And Paul says, I am willing to be poured out on your sacrifice of faith. And, and there's this teamwork and this unity that he's modeling to them right here. And he's saying this, I am willing to yield up my life and to pour my life and my existence upon, on top of the sacrifice of your faith. I'm willing to be a part of this giving of myself because it's to the Lord and it's for God. And so you live for God and I'll live for God and I'll give my life and you live your life for Jesus. And I'm, if I'm poured out, which is kind of a metaphor not only of the offering, but it, it's, in, in more specific terms, it was a blood offering that was dumped on top of a sacrifice. And Paul is using this metaphor also of martyrdom and the idea that this may be the end for him. And so he says, if I am offered on the, off on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In other words, if the Lord takes my life right now, I am glad and I rejoice with you because of what God has done in your life. Because your love for the Lord, your willingness to keep going for the Lord, I will be happy in death if that is the case. But then he turns it around and says, for the same reason also, you be glad and rejoice with me. It kind of reminds us of him in Corinthians where he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Now that wasn't the case, in, that second line wasn't the case, but that spend and be spent for you, that's this idea. Um, do you remember that one other place where Paul talks about offer? Anybody else remember? He uses the word offer of himself. Same word that's used here. In 2 Timothy at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy and he says, I am now ready to be offered. It's that same word. Now in 2 Timothy, he says, it's time. In Philippians here, he says, if I am offered. And a big distinction between the two, which we won't get into all the details of that, but 
I believe Paul was in prison or imprisoned two times, and I believe there was an intervening period. And we see a very different spirit in 2 Timothy. He's, he's saying, I'm ready to go. My, my time is up. But here, he was kind of in between, right? In a straight between two, he, he talked about whether to go or to stay. His heart for the Philippians is so evident here, isn't it? To be poured out. You know, that kind of takes me back to someone else who was poured out. Remember how the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane talked about the cup? And then he poured out his life. He poured out his love and yielded up his spirit. And what an example of humility that was to be poured out for someone else. But Paul did that. And that's what encourages me because I know sometimes Jesus as the perfect example seems a little too high above us. But Paul, he was flesh and blood. And I know the Lord Jesus was flesh and blood too. But I'm just saying he was a sinner saved by grace where Jesus was not. And Paul said, I'm willing to be poured out. Let me ask you a question real quick. Who are you pouring your life out for? Anyone? You know what many people are doing? They're pouring their life out for themselves. This is my life. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Paul says, I very willingly will pour out my life for you because here's your faith and here's my service and my love for you. On top of that, we'll yield this up as a service to God. What a spirit. Paul's living out what he just taught them about that humility and that condescension and that yielding your life for others beautiful beautiful words from paul here tonight i hope we'll take them to heart i hope we'll remember we are people that shine as lights and that our lives are being poured out and may they be poured out to the glory of god and not just the consumption of self well let's close in prayer we'll take any questions or comments when we're done lord we thank you for your word tonight these important truths i pray that you will help us to live them out and in spirit and in action to be aware and on guard against arguments and murmurings. Help us to remember that we shine as lights in this world. Help us to remember that every one of us is pouring out our life on something. And may it be something that is worthwhile, something that will last for eternity. We praise you and we love you here today. We lift you up as the one true God, thanking you for being our Savior, our King, and our friend. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any questions or comments on the text? Anything that stuck out or wasn't explained or applied?